Hello everyone and welcome and depending on where you're joining from, uh, good morning or good evening. My name is Shairi De Silva. I'm the Curator of Art and Archival Collections at the Jeffrey Butler Trust. Today's event is the fourth in the public program of our upcoming exhibition in Colombo, titled It is Essential to be There. The exhibition takes its name from a quote by Jeffrey Bauer on the importance of being at a place to design. And through drawing from the archives of Bauer's practice, it becomes apparent that site is a multi-layered term deeply intertwined with its social, political, and economic context. Through our public program for the exhibition, we hope to open up the discourse more widely to conversations on the built environment. Our hope with an exhibition that is somewhat retrospective is only to look back as we look ahead and that such a gaze may help us to better understand our contemporary cities and buildings. Considering these aims, it is a tremendous pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this evening, Keller Easterling. Keller is an American architect, theorist, writer, and the Enid Dwyerstorm Professor at the Yale University School of Architecture where in fact, I have the privilege of studying with her. Her CV is extensive and I've been struggling to condense it into a few lines, but I think I would highlight that in addition to her incredibly important work as an educator, she has authored some of the most significant books on urbanism and globalization of our time, including Enduring Innocence, Global Architecture and its Political Masquerades, Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space, and most recently, Medium Design, Knowing How to Work in the World. She's also exhibited widely, including at multiple Venice Biennales, the Istanbul and Rotterdam Biennales, and she's published work in several journals, including Art Forum, Perspecta, Harvard Design Magazine, and Volume, to name just a few. In 2019, Keller was named a United States Artist Fellow in Architecture and Design. I can keep going, but I think it's time to turn to our conversation, where I hope we might look at some of the ways in which Keller advocates for viewing and working in the world. This is an informal event, and uh, we hope to open up to questions at the end. So please do drop your questions into the Q&A bar on your Zoom control panel. Thank you, Keller, for joining us rather early in your day. Um, I'm really excited to have you with us today, partly because um, I think we have quite a few people in our audience who might be encountering your work for the first time. We've titled this talk Medium Design, which uh, is also the name of your most recent book. And perhaps to start with, uh, would you mind describing what you mean by that term medium design? Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you, uh, Shari, and with, with, with your audience. I admire so much. Uh, the work you all are, are doing there in the trust. Um, what I mean by medium design is, um, well, first of all, I'm using that word in a way that references its root medius, meaning middle or, or milieu. So um, it's in some ways looking at the way the world is wired, um, looking at kind of organizational constitution between things. I mean, you know, um, I don't know if, if you, maybe all of your audience might know, but I, I, my research has been often looking at gigantic organizations 
Uh, I'm an architect and an urbanist, but I'm not, you know, often looking at architecture just as kind of geometric shapes and outlines, but looking instead at the kind of rules and relationships that um, shape our space. Um, and so medium design is in a sense looking at those, uh, again, looking at that matrix, looking at that sort of chemistry between things, um, looking at how, how it's wired, how it's constituted, what its temperament is. Um, so that's, that's in brief what I mean by medium design. You know, that we can design not only the shapes and outlines, but we can also design the, some of the rules and relationships for how things interact and are in, in interplay with each other. Thanks. I think we can also possibly tease this out a little bit more as we, as we speak. But um, I was also wondering if we might speak to the subtitle of the book, which um, knowing how to work on the world. And um, you speak about knowing that versus knowing how. And I, I think in the book you quote Michael Polanyi and knowledge versus know-how, uh, which I thought was a really interesting thing, especially in the context uh, that we're speaking from, where um, there is no system to understand or a logic to follow. Um, could you speak to that? distinction a little bit further? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, there's things I regret about that subtitle because it's, um, it sounds a little more confident than I, than I wanted it to sound. I would have preferred the subtitle to be something like working without solutions. Um, but, um, you know, Publishing has different needs, um, but uh, I'm referring to a distinction that Gilbert Ryle made, and yes, Michael Polanyi too, um, uh, about the difference between knowing that and knowing how. Like there's knowing that, which is you know knowing the right answer to things, uh, being able to find the the the. Um, sort of expression on the other side of the equal sign. These are the thing, you know, these are the things that culture wants you to know, wants you to have the answer to things. They want the solution and so on. Um, but Gilbert Ryle talked about the difference between knowing that and knowing how, that knowing how is kind of like knowing, uh, knowing what to do next, knowing how to read the potentials in a situation and and adjust those potentials. Um, and in a sense, it's, um, uh, as, as Michael Polanyi said, it's something like tacit knowledge. It's, um, it's the kind of knowledge that if you are just thinking about knowing the answer, it kind of gets in the way of it. Um, like if you were trying to play the piano and you only think, about fingering you can't kind of play the piano but the and I was trying to say in the in medium design that this is often this managing of potentials is often what we're doing all day long but it's not expressed or given authority it's um it's what you're doing when you stare into the fridge and figure out how to um work out something between all the potentials of expiration dates and 
tastes and chemistries and the hunger of the person that you're feeding and so on. It's very kind of complex uh, thinking. Um, and I think most urbanists are also um, have a good sense or like the Jeffrey Bawa, you know, a good sense of knowing how as well as knowing that. Um, I sometimes also give this example of playing pool. Um, like it, it, you can't kind of have an answer to playing pool. <laughs> like you, you, um, you can only react to the next arrangement of balls on the table and a good pool player just knows how to react to those changing conditions. Yeah, I really, I like those examples because it's almost, there's a kind of intuition in that, but it's not, um, it's intuition that I guess is married with training or, and I'm, I'm just wondering if we might speak a little bit more about the role of the architect, the urban designer, the, um, the artist, you know, where, um, where your kind of training, what you've been taught to read ties in with. Um, do you think, are there any examples we might call out from um, the built environment that, because I, I really, I think that it, it is absolutely a productive way in, um, especially in an increasingly unknowable world where there's just so many elements at play. Um, yes, I, um, I think it's, um, one could say that there, it's relying in some sense on tacit knowledge, um, which is something like intuition, except that, um, you know, I think the, the, um, that the part of our culture that wants right answers, you know, usually wants them in some anointed technical language, digital, quantifiable, legal, so on. Um, you know, regards sometimes what um, designers and artists know as some kind of like unknowable voodoo or something like that. But I, I, I think that this kind of knowing how is just super practical. Um, is, 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 is not, there's nothing mystical about it or, or just some kind of like artist vision or something like that. It's, it's, it's really being able to read potentials in arrangements um, and, you know, training the mind to, to read that, like, you know, if I'm I'm looking out onto a street in New York that has uh, probably a hundred doors come off of, onto that street, um, the the potential of that street is very different than a street that has one door that comes off. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's th like that kind of thing, um, and even as simple as that spatial example is, um, I find even as a professor that. Um, there's, our students are better rehearsed, especially students who are being taught all around, better rehearsed at econometrics, legal expressions, right answers than they are just at simply seeing some simple um, potentials. Um, and I try to give a lot of examples in the book where um, given, given this potential and given that potential, you know, kind of going back to the 
um, pool metaphor, there's a lot of good reasons to take the shot. You know, um, uh, a lot of very sane, uh, you know, reasons. Um, um, I think another reason that that kind of approach um, really resonates is one, how relatable it is to Sri Lanka. Where, um, it's not really clear how, how we engage better with the built environment as something that's more of a fabric or a network as opposed to individual buildings. And, um, you know, it's a system in which say policy takes a very, very long time to update. Um, we, um, the law, actually the judicial system takes a long time to act. So you need to sort of shortcut and um, as you would say, rewire some of those ways of working. Um, but the other thing that I think I find really um, interesting is how you talk about the potentials in systems where there is messiness or even dumbness. And um, I mean, I'd love to also explore what that, what you mean by you know the dumbness of the smart, and um, maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Well, I suppose all this work, you know, comes from being profoundly disappointed in 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 the in the politics and uh, cultural life where you are. And because I'm in the United States, I am in, you know, a place of, you know, profound stupidity quite frequently, um, deadlocked politics. Um, and so you end up, you know, yes, you do work on, on a kind of political agenda as an activist. And then you're just trying to figure out, is there another form of, is there a spatial approach to direct action? Yes, I will march in the streets. Yes, I will blockade. I will protest. I will um, sabotage whatever is necessary as an activist. We know we're going to do that always. But then what, what are some you know, spatial approaches to a real direct action that might have some effect. And how do you do that when all you've got are problems? You know, well, all you've got a problem, not only do you have, you know, you, you have no, nothing, no asset. And I think architects are kind of frequently presented with that kind of situation, um, even, you know, from, from having no money to having, deficits and, and, and massive problems to face. So, you know, rather than thinking like kind of solutionist thinking, I, I have the right, you know, the one and only answer, um, uh, which is kind of, you know, hangovers from enlightenment habits of mind and so on. Um, if you're thinking in this kind of medium thinking, Maybe you're thinking, not only do I not want solutions, I, I like problems. I, problems have potentials in them, the same. And, and often medium thinking is, is a matchmaking between the potentials of problems. Um, that you, you may have three problems and you need four or five really in order to really get the chemistry uh, going. Um, so there's no, um, that 
so, I mean, in, in a way it's a, a kind of resource, resourceful way of trying to think through what seems like an impossible situation. <laughs> um, um, but then there's also plenty of examples of why, why that, why that might be really productive. Could you maybe speak to one of those examples? And... Yeah, I mean, um, I think we're um, in many of the the neighborhoods and communities where we are. There are um, part of the trouble, often the trouble like is because we have segregated problems from each other. <laughs> like um, uh, uh, we've marooned things off into different areas. I mean, think of uh, the way is this true in, now in almost every mega city in the world. You know, we have, um, we have a kind of growing, exploding periphery that's growing larger and larger as it gets less and less dense. Um, and it's housing people who are kind of auto-constructing their lives and remain kind of marooned with no infrastructure. Uh, um, and the typical kind of planning example for that, planning solution for that would be the bulldozer, right? Like get out the bulldozer, make huge arterials through this, uh, disenfranchise people, push them further out into a larger and larger periphery. Um, but some of the examples that we're looking at in, in medium design are looking at all different kinds of, for instance, land holding organs. Um, and you could apply that in informal, what so-called informal settlements, auto-constructed settlements, where you could apply it to the suburbs of Detroit or, or Dallas, you know, um, but ways in which people might pool their land, reorganize it, create value out of arrangement, take the things that are incredibly uh, at odds or at cross purposes and create another value, give themselves infrastructure, um, organize ways to um, uh, create open space. Um, many other ways that um, you could take a context full of problems and, and rearrange them um, to create value. And I guess in that kind of messiness, there's also often um, it's not only a spatial approach or only a, something that needs a building or a room. Um, and I, I guess I'd love to hear you speak more about the ways in which um, architecture might interface with um, technology or, or indeed like a conceptual agreement structure or something. Yes. Um, well, uh, the one example, one example that comes to mind somehow just now is um, it's one that's in the book, but it it's looking at um, the way in which public housing projects 
and this is true all around the world, but this happens to be in, in the United States, a public housing project that was uh, you know, often um, seen as kind of concentrating some problems, trying to, again, maroon off a population into an area, segregate a population. Um, and there was a, a, a part of uh, Cincinnati, which also had one of these um, housing projects, but, but where there was also a really high infant mortality rate. Um, and so it just seemed like problems compounding problems. Um, but a rewiring of the situation in which there were some of the older women in the um, housing project were paired with younger women in the housing project as their kind of health champions. And then suddenly <laughs> the infant mortality rate starts going down. Um, so it, it all, it, it, I mean, that kind of simple shift of chemistry so that the older women were helping them to understand they were part of a support network, um, so on. So you could use an example like that or completely different kind of example. Let's say, um, um, like we know that uh, um, there are automated forms of transport that everyone thinks, oh, we'll shift now, we're done with this uh, technology. And in our modern enlightenment habits of mind, we will say that was the old solution. What is the new solution? The new answer that kills the old answer. Now it's electric vehicles, automated technology and so on. Um, and it's, it's really clear that while there are really interesting things about that, that if it's, if that technology, for instance, in a city is used in lieu of transit and everyone's just driving around their own individually owned electric cars, there'll be greater congestion than ever before. So the more interesting than the new technology is the refreshed relationship between technologies. So the real innovation the real sophistication is in relationships between technologies. So figuring out a smarter way of switching between transportation systems of different capacities, low capacity driving, high capacity transit, bicycles, walking, that kind of thing. And that also, you know, might, I mean, of course, I would say that is a space, you know, of switching um, a space that that one designs and I and then you know that would be also one of those moments where you see potentials and you take a shot you know um yes there's data to support it but it's not going to be an equation and, and just going back to that idea of messiness in that first example which um I really loved in the book you know um would just, I mean, am I right in reading that as an example of messiness where you're not going to change, um, you're not going to change the healthcare system to alleviate high infant mortality. So you're looking at something, would, would, that, would that be what you consider in that kind of um, the intertwining of um, how a place is occupied? Is that? Yes, I mean, I guess I'm saying me messy, messy is integrated messy is is entangled and in a way 
designing is in this context of medium design, designing is entangling. Designing is increasing entanglement um, um, as a way of creating redundancies, uh, richness, integrated networks, um, connections. Um, you know, it come. I mean, I think it's a, it's a way of thinking that's been part of um, how people think about digital architecture. You know, that digital architecture works better when it's redundant, when it's messy, and that model of thinking about digital architecture in a way comes from, you know, understandings or misunderstandings of, of neurophysiological architecture, you know, that's hackable. Yeah, then it's, that it's, there's, there's the, the, the most interesting kind of neurological firings happen because there's a lot of, a, a lot of, of messiness and uh, and redundancy and um, in the networks. Yeah. Um, and I think when you you know when you were talking about the say something like technology and not looking for the this will kill that method and I think I find that um, to be a really insightful way of actually even working in something like the archives, which is a very retrospective um, approach, but I think um, I'm very interested in how we look at the past as it relates to now. And I think um, very keen to not fall into the traps of the isms and the categorizations. And um, interestingly, that was also something that, you know, Bauer didn't write a lot, but he, um, when he did, he had, he had this one sort of mega state, one statement that he just would re slightly adjust, but essentially stuck by for the 40 years of his career. Um, and it's one that we've looked at very, very closely. And one of the things he does talk about is how categories will replace each other, but the essence of something might not. Um, but also he sort of really questions that idea of something being um, the Dutch colonial building or the Arab tile. And I think, um, I think that's actually something that I relate to when I read your work, which is trying not to sort of separate things. Um, but I am curious what role history plays in your work or looking, what role does looking back play in your work? Um, well, oh, there's so much to talk about there. Um, uh, you know, it, it, um, I too have done a lot of archival work. I'm just now embarking on, a, on an archival project, which involves a lot of, not a lot of, but some uh, archival audio and um, realizing how much I understand uh, from the milieu, from the sound in the room, from, uh, from the from the exchanges in conversation uh, that give me incredible understanding um, that I didn't have from reading something or working on another archival project about uh, suburbs in America where um, I finally understood so much by looking at ads, all the ads, you know, like, so there's all the, there's, a, there's often a lot of ephemeral information 
that finally um, tells you so much more than the declarations, the boundaries, uh, and so on. And that's that really is, in essence, also what this kind of medium design kind of thinking is. Um, and in a larger historical context, I, I mean, I think we are all looking back at the last 500 years. Um, uh, the last 500 years, the last few centuries of which have been an intense braid of whiteness, imperialism, uh, you know, colonizing, globalizing, capitalizing periods. And, you know, with the help of indigenous, black feminist, thinkers, we are seeing, you know, more and more clearly how to make that whole chapter, those chapters of histories, much more puny, um, uh, filled, you know, with the stupid folly of, and hubris of conquest, uh, the, the folly that you could own across the bit of the crust of the earth, um, all these things that, you know, we're going back to ask what was before that, what predated that, not with some kind of myth of indigeneity, but with a, a broader sense. I mean, I, I love what, what, I may be going off the topic here, but I mean, I love what Sadia Hartman said when she was trying to discuss use the word indigeneity in a way that also accounts for diasporas of all sorts, not only slaves, but, but uh, others. Um, and she said, maybe indigeneity is a, is a mark of your relationship to the earth, uh, that a relationship that doesn't regard it as a possession. Um, and, I, and I, I think we're going back to look at our histories in ways that, I mean, I hope that we're, we're, we're actually trying to get some of our history to just get out of the way um, of some of the ways we want to think now, uh, to try to shed some of that um, enlightenment habit of mind uh, so that we're not constantly reproducing it. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the words that I, or phrases that I kept finding in the book was cultural narratives. And I thought just positioning it in that way is bringing attention to the fact that it is a narrative, um, which I really appreciate. And I think, um, and I think this is the, the struggle with, um, say, curatorial work or, um, you know, even sort of trying to bring out archival work because there is a narrative and um, how we present that without also then saying, here's the opposition and here it is, you know, neatly wrapped up. Um, and I guess, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear you speak more about this, but my sense is that you're looking not so much at the narratives, but as at the, maybe the networks. Um, but I'm curious how you approach because approach that idea of 
saying something without then subscribing to a narrative yourself. Yeah, in a way it is the, isn't it maybe something like the, the way that uh, we structure those narratives? Like if I say, uh, oh, I think this needs to be changed, then it has to be a manifesto, you know, a, mani a manifesto where this thing kills the thing before it, you know, um, that have that again, modern habit of mind. I mean, modern back to the, the um, 17th century modern, um, uh, that modern habit of mind um, in which one thing kills another, um, but, uh, you know, trying to think instead about not successive intelligence, but coexistent intelligent, not successive technologies like we were talking about before with the, the cars and stuff, but, but coexistent um, technologies, um, not some kind of progression of intelligence, um, but, but folded chronologies, crumpled time, uh, uh, sharing of intelligence across, um, you know, reoccurrences, um, the look, looking for those <clears throat> without the kind of uh, art historical march of this conquered this and then it took over that and then, and then as if we were somehow, you know, progressing towards something more some kind of teal of, of sophistication, you know, that, that, that is the, that is the crazy um, apparatus, thinking apparatus that comes with this modern enlightenment mind, you know, that it's, that it's, that it's, there's one, there's only the one and only, you know, or the binary, you know, the one and only, which has to fight to be the one and only, and so squares off in a fight to be, you know, it's just, it's so, unbelievably uh, childish. Um, it's the, the baby human, you know. Um, uh, so there's a, you know, to borrow from Sylvia Winter, there's a kind of re-enchanting of the human, rediscovery re of all these things that we can do and ways that we can think that aren't just about kind of combat collapse, um, you know, <laughs> one and only um, mono-ideational thinking, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious how, I know, you know, if medium design is really just putting the question of form to task, and yet um, something like the kind of network, neural, the wiring, I often think also of how, what role does science play in all of this and the way we're taught science or talk about it which is here's here are the facts and here's the but then at the very ends of those spectrums when you go to kind of astrophysics or um, chemistry at the most basic elemental level there is a role for form but it's form intertwined with time or with um, do you ever think about form in that way or um, how do you think about it? <laughs> I mean, I, the, the, it's, it's easy to understand in some ways uh, why, uh, you know, culture and power 
would you know want to be able to ossify form into a few simple um you know outlines and 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 shapes and uh, ideologies and declarations um to consolidate um power um um but i, I mean even well you could I think people who are in the sciences know better, know that um, from, I mean, just from the simplest um, examples of something like a, a periodic table of the elements, you know, the, 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 yes, they're fixed in their little boxes, the elements, but they are, what they are is a, tumbling mass of interactivity they 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 are we know something about them because of their interactivity because of their interplay so for me a form is i mean you know a form can be a a, a form can be many things so you know um and it's used in in different disciplines in in many different ways uh it's used as noun and verb and um so on and architects i mean i think most other disciplines would would roar with laughter that architects typically see say form as like a shape um you know um <laughs> uh geometry you know um but i mean but looking at it more broadly as the as the, the spectrum of uses of that term it does include a little bit what I'm talking about, which is form as interplay, form as form as rhythm, form as repetition, form as multiplier, form as um, uh, calculus between something and something else, um, uh, form as chemical reaction between something and something else, just to kind of try to stray a little bit into into the math and into math and science um, i don't know if that's what you meant when, but um. no i think that is and i think um i think that idea of scale or even scalability is important to is an important factor in all of this and you know especially when you talk about something like a multiplier um and you know, I think I mentioned there are these bizarre ways in which I see um, parallels in your practice in Bawa's, even though your outputs are as different as they could possibly be. Um, but one is I think that what he felt about something like a, a latch for a door was very, very particular. Like, and um, of course impacted by the fact that Srinagar had a closed economy, couldn't import something like a window latch, so he would have to make it and then think about how it felt, how it looked, um, how it sat on the windowsill. And that same thinking can be kind of charted through to something like a university campus. And I think, um, I feel that that's also there, that, that kind of the granular attention, but then I remember when I remember in class when you would talk about the acupuncture approach where you do smaller changes that might affect a system. Um, I'm just wondering, how did you begin to start thinking about space in that way? Well, um, I mean, I think, I think <clears throat> that 
<clears throat> excuse me, um, most good designers are moving up and down in scale like that. A good designer like like Jeffrey Butler, you know, just you know, um, knows that it matters. Um, but I, I was actually looking. I mean, I started sort of seeing some of the the power of something like a multiplier in some of these like repeatable formats for space that were being shipped exported around the world in every direction um but even looking at something like a repetitive suburb and realizing that as an architect i had been trained to fix up the you know the little house but that that was not what was going on and instead there were um <clears throat> you know the the site was being organized almost like a agricultural field or a, um, a an assembly line so that there were 17,000 slabs poured 17,000 houses framed 17,000 roofs being put on in some kind of sequential thing um, and realizing that the real power would be to find another germ that would act almost like a multiplier to recondition that that process um, but it, but yeah, any I think any good architect is is realizing that um, these little fittings, the little things that go between other things, are are the are the chemistry there of or of the of the larger organization, um, it, not a homogeneous organization, but but a heterogeneous organization. But that they they matter. They are they are the little catalyst that's repeated. Um, they they set up a kind of protocol for how things will work, how windows will open, how people will see each other, and that that can have a kind of population effect. You know, it, it that little fitting you know is the thing that's going to be repeated how many hundreds of times and its little operation is going to change so much the humans that are in your uh in the thing you've designed are going to put their hand on that um the uh, same as like a stair you know that's the place where you're touching the people for whom you're designing um and it's incredibly powerful uh thing to use to to choreograph um shift yeah shift chemistries shift behavior slightly um, I, I don't want to sound like a behaviorist i don't mean shift behaviors but 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 it's it's um it's little potentials that that are being distributed in um uh in an environment. Um. And was it with that um, the project of the looking at the suburban housing that you began to engage with the other disciplines that you do look at very closely? Um, and I, I think you don't actually sort of necessarily separate them as other in, in this um, matrix, but how did you I mean, I, I know we have a lot of students in our audience. So I know it'd be great for them to hear how you start looking at economics, law, you know, what? Um... 
Uh, yeah, I was just looking at how those, um, how they were often, it was often a kind of spatial formula. Suburbs are one, but you could look at um, um, the way that a simple relationship between, you know, an elevator and a structural steel frame in the end of the 19th century, within a hundred years changed the crust of the earth. Just that relationship multiplied as a kind of germ um, changed utterly uh, the, the, you know, this, the way that we inhabit the earth. Um, so also looking at how there were not architects, but um, people designing space who were um, people wanting to capitalize and commercialize all space, making it into repeatable formulas um, that were conquering kind of market territories around the world, uh, you know, irrespective of political boundaries and so on. And I had been looking at all of these kinds of formulas from yeah, resorts and malls and skyscrapers and um, automated ports and uh, all, the, all those kind of repeatable formulas that, that, that airports and free zones and stuff all around the world. Um, and seeing, um, I thought, that they were just kind of like bottom line um, functional things, uh, functional formulas, but seeing more and more how they were acquiring a kind of uh, another level of territory in the world uh, and a, what one would call a kind of extra state territory also negotiating their own exemptions from the laws of a domestic economy. Uh, you know, the sort of free zone instant cities are kind of like incubators for all of those different kinds of formulas. Uh, I'm sure you have them there in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and they have managed to negotiate their exemptions from laws so thoroughly uh, that, um, uh, that, that, that labor is in a situation where it, 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 it doesn't have any recourse in the old kind of shop floor ways that we, that we thought uh, that people can be, uh, <clears throat> you know, shipped and at, like equipment from one place to another uh, and through multiple jurisdictions so that there's no way of, of tracking. And this kind of, this is, these, these spaces are really kind of engine rooms of the of the neoliberalism that that um, you know has really ossified since the eighties or or nineties, um, uh, and really constitutes a kind of extra state territory that is very uh, troubling. Um, uh, especially since we, you know, we're trained to think that, you know, national laws, national legislation is a world filled with nation states as the elementary particle. Well, there is no elementary particle. Uh, there is no singular enemy. A, a lot of our ideas about 
you know, capital Marxism, uh, 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 settler colonialism, so on, all super important, but now none of them sufficient by themselves. It's worse than that. <laughs> uh, and I am trying to make that territory very graphic because it so happens that it's made up of architecture and urbanism. I have more questions, but I feel that we should open up um, if anyone wants to, you can drop in your questions through the Q&A. Um, all right, we have our first question from Deshan who says, a hypothetical based on Corey Doctorow's work, if you have time. Assume three printers can print copies of themselves and they can print anything from the dough bricks to electrical cable, given the right feedstock. In a world like that, how might a medium designed village grow and what form might it take in your neck of the woods, given the existing build spaces of our world? I'm going to have to ask you to repeat some of that because I because your voice was going in and out a little bit. I don't know why. It's just the audio got a little. Oh, um, um, I'm just going to. Okay, I'll be taking a sorry. hypothetical based on Corey Doctorow's work, if you have time. Assume one, that 3D printers can print copies of themselves. And two, that they can print anything from Adobe bricks to electrical cable, given the right feedstock. In a world like that, how might medium designed village grow and what form might it take in your neck of the woods given the existing built spaces of our world? Um, thank you for that. That's a fascinating uh, question. Um, and of course I don't have a, I, not only do I not have an answer, but I'm not even sure I, I wouldn't, I have a good response, but um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I suppose the, my first urge in this question is um, to think about some of its uh, some of the um, assumptions that sometimes go with with what um, would constitute change right now, um, and um, more and more um, people ask me questions. Um, which do assume that there's um, a new technology that's part of why something is changing. Um, and some, some uh, I, um, or I'm, I'll be hired to teach um, in, you know, a sort of uh, milieu that's about science fiction or something like that. And I, 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 I have to sort of back out of it and say, I don't think you meant to invite me because I, I, I kind of push against some of the um, assumptions of, of science fiction, just the structural assumptions of science fiction, that there's something out in the future <laughs> or that there is something in the new technology. And I know that's not what this, this um, question is, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that the, within the context of this question, um, the urge would be to make the sand in the machine, to, to make the thing that doesn't uh, resolve itself 
as a repeatable digital component um, to mix with that um, kind of homogenizing uh, com homogenizing repeat repeatable being things that 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 resist that um, to, to make the mixture more heterogeneous in every way. It's also, I mean, even if the, the endless 3D printers can print endless material, we don't know if they can also print endless energy and at what point it will be curtailed. Yeah. And also this, you know, just uh, there's not, I mean, it's not necessarily a, I mean, now we think, well, a, a digital technology, that's the new, new thing, you know? And, and so, uh, you know, one also is looking at all kinds of other technologies. Um, but just, it's that, it's that tricky thing again, where, um, you know, it's been hammered into our minds since we were babies um, to have the right answer and to get the new technology, you know? Um, and I hope that answered your question. Or I'm, I apologize for the insufficient <laughs> answer. Um, do we have any others? Um, oh, someone just texted me a question. I think I'm, I'll just read it out. Um, As you have just discussed, you back out of presenting these terms and language as fiction or image. How do you place the role of architecture as a discipline to design these connections? Is it about image making as an imagination or about design knowledge, etc.? Um, well, I, I think it is, um, I mean, it, anyone can pursue their own artistic choice within the discipline of architecture, perfectly reasonable choice to just want to make things with a shape and an outline. Um, but um, like this coffee cup also has um, a shape, but it also has an affordance. It, 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 it lets me put my finger through it. Um, it is, um, it is, a shape, but it's also doing something. Um, and so I think most good designers um, are also see that um, even things that are inert, inorganic, static are behaving. And um, I, as good as we are uh, and should be about manipulating geometry and you know shape and all those things, I, I'm, I think it is central also to what, what we do um, to be able to see the affordances that things have and the affordances that things have in connection with each other, be able to see the repertoires that things enact um, at, the, at the very least. Uh, and then I, I also have real hopes for your training um, I mentioned that I, you know, teach these kind of lecture courses uh, across a university and I see all the students who are going to be like McKinsey consultants or, you know, CIA agents or I don't know what, but, or economists and uh, so on. And 
And then I see the designers in the room and the intelligence of the designers to think correlatively, to think across categories and so on is I really relish. And part of what I'm trying to do even when teaching is increase the authority for design thinking. Um, uh, you know, as we said, there's this kind of anointed digital or econometric or legal language. What about spatial variables? Um, and I, I think they should have, we should be able to see more clearly the, the spatial apparatus of, of communities and, and, and political situations. So I, I'll just add to that, that I imagine that, it, that a lot of what I'm talking about is outside of a, just a client-based profession. It's without question. It is, in, and in, since that's largely unsustainable for many people leaving school, I don't feel too guilty saying that. It's hard what I'm describing, but at the same time, I think it means that what we're taking is out, we're taking our spatial and design knowledge and putting it into new partnerships, new coalitions, new ways of practicing in which we have the relevance that we deserve, um, not just uh, kind of waiting for a client to you know, suggest something. I think we have knowledge that should be, that is incredibly valuable in the world. I have one more question following on that, but I wonder if anybody in the audience um, probably have time for one more question. Oh, we got one. Um, in medium design, would you also reject the idea of a hierarchy of issues or the areas you need to focus on more? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, the um, the hierarchies are, you know, part of that, that habit of mind that we've been making the straw man and um, this sort of modern enlightenment habit of mind. Um, at the same time, I think we, we can all, you know, focus on the interrelated and, and put first uh, and foremost, um, put the interrelated forms of, of violence to uh, beings and, and the planet as the thing which is urgent. Um, I, I mean, I, so I'm not saying there's one and only, um, or that there's one and only approach to it. It could be, I've been studying a lot now about kind of different forms of international solidarity from the 60s and 70s and going and replaying it back over and over and over again. Um, at moments when the, when the, you know, the non-line movement uh, of the decolonizing global south was in solidarity with the US civil rights movement. Um, uh, with uh, Pan-Africanism and with the tricontinental movement, that there was this incredible um, solidarity. Looking back to saying, you know, what will be the 
new forms of international solidarity and planetary solidarity. Um, and really beginning to think, and this goes to your question, that that while a lot, a lot of the kind of global international solidarity came with the same ideas of hierarchy, manifesto, a singular solution, revolution, combat, collapse, all of that, that maybe that, that global solidarity that was looking for the universal you know, answer to all, that maybe our planetary solidarity is more patchy and partial um, instead of, doesn't look for universals, but for the patchy and the partial that's situated in, in very particular places, but that because of it's multiplied many times might have a much larger effect. Thanks, Ella. I hope that question is answered. And unless we have any last burning questions, I think I think we um, thank you so much. That was really wonderful. Um, oh, we do have. Oh, let's see. Um, do you, are you okay with time, Kelly? Can yes. <laughs> yes, I'm fine. I see the question. Uh, okay. the one we're gathered here tonight yes um we'll just read it out because we'll also have an audio of this uh so it says we are gathered here tonight this morning uh all as admirers of the way bauer bridged his own background which is multicultural his education which was uk-based colonial mindset and the rich currents of tradition in his own country also multicultural what is your approach which seems to have true form aesthetic effect have to say about that. I'm so glad you asked this question because I, it was on my mind. I, I spent all yesterday looking at more and more at Jeffrey Bawa's uh, work and uh, you know had planned to say many more things and, and failed to. But um, I mean, for someone like me, who's kind of like looking with half closed eyes at the world, sometimes looking past just objects and looking at the stuff between them, uh, Jeffrey Bawa's work is enacting all those things in, in my view. He, he is, like many artists I admire, good at mixtures, um, good at how you mix things. He's a good chemist of milieu and environment. Um, and what I really loved was that you could still see um, you could still see things distinctly. It it wasn't an attempt um, which one sometimes sees in you know colonial or post-colonial architecture to either make the hybrid or make the combination or make the uh, assimilated um flattening of all but instead in his work things remain distinct and lumpy uh, uh they remain so that you can still see that um uh china pattern and you can read where that china pattern comes from at the same time it must sit beside something else and the negotiation of difference without flattening or assimilation 
it, the way that he could create those mixtures and, and 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 set up potentials for them and live within them uh, is all about living. Um, and for me, also about organizations that are not just abstractions, but organizations that are alive. You know, I mean, his organizations are alive with with the interaction between the potentials of things. Um, and that is, you know, a, a clear uh, from, from uh, uh, sampling some of his work. Thanks, Caroline. And thanks, Stephen, for that question. I think it's a great place to end. I think um, Kella has given us so much to think about and I hope, um, I hope you'll all visit the show and with it, um, come, come with it, come to it with your own questions, which is exactly what we want. And we just hope these uh, weeks to come, we can all just reflect more about the buildings that are making up our environment and the stuff in between as well, which um, I think is maybe our first step. <laughs> um, Thanks again for your time and for everyone who's joined us either very late in the evening or very early in the morning. Um, and I really hope uh, we'll see you at our future events. My pleasure. What a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Yep.